Josh and TK are two thirds of The Minimalists. They teach their followers how to get more from their lives by rejecting consumerism and pursuing what brings the most joy. We chat about the subtle ways that consumerism creeps into our lives, how to reconnect to the dreams that we lost in the pursuit of traditional success, and how to generate permissionless abundance. What is the problem that minimalism solves? Or, uh, you know, begins to solve that I know spirals into many other sorts of philosophies that you guys abide by? When I talk about minimalism, I'm often talking about minimalism being the thing that gets us past the things so we mm -hmm. can make room for life's most important things. But that's just a cute way to say that We've got a lot of stuff in our lives, right? The average American household, according to the Los Angeles Times, has 300,000 items in it, mm -hmm. which would be awesome if it was making us happier, more joyous, more contented. It increased our tranquility and our well-being. But I think most of us know that most of our possessions, they end up getting in the way. Mm. We call that clutter, right? Anything that gets in the way is clutter. And it starts really with the physical possessions, but I think our material possessions are really a, a physical manifestation of what's going on inside us. So if you go into someone's home, like my home used to be, I had a big house in the suburbs, I was really successful in my corporate career, I had a lot of stuff. There was a lot of clutter, but that's because there was a lot of internal clutter as well. It was a manifestation of the emotional clutter, the spiritual clutter, the psychological clutter, the calendar clutter, career clutter. There's a lot of clutter in our lives. And so what we found with minimalism, as you start simplifying the things around you, clearing the excess, you start to look inside and you realize like, oh, it's really loud mm. in my heart. It's really loud in my mind. My thoughts are out of control. And I didn't even realize it because I'm so used to the chaos. So the question that you asked is about the problem that this solves. I think that the problem is new, but the solution is old. Minimalism goes by a bunch of different names. You can look at any contemplative tradition mm -hmm. from ancient mm -hmm. wisdom traditions, whether it's Christianity or Hinduism, or you look at the Buddhist, or you look at Sufi Islam, you look at ancient Hebrew traditions, and you realize a lot of it has to do with simplifying our life, cutting out the excess so we can determine what's important. But the problem is new. Never before have we had so much unadulterated access to consumption. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't think consumption is the problem. We all need some stuff, right? Even when you were living like a minimalist out of a suitcase, <laughs> you needed some stuff there, right? Yeah. Uh, we're all wearing clothes. I'm talking into a microphone, right? I have a house. I have a car. Like, there's nothing wrong with the things. So consumption isn't the problem. What is the problem? Consumerism is the problem. That is the new problem that we're facing. And consumerism is simply the ideology that buying things is going to make you happy or complete. Mm. We've all experienced that, right? Like, oh, you know, I feel so discontented, but if I just get the right car, I'll be happy. Mm. If I get the right job title, I'll be happy. If I get the right furniture in my home and it looks aesthetically pleasing, well, then I'll be happy. And then we buy the things and it turns out, oh, those things didn't make me happy. You know what? I didn't buy the right thing. <laughs> so it wasn't a BMW that I needed. I needed a Lexus or a yeah, Mercedes. Yeah. And eventually like, oh, I, I didn't buy the right things. So I'll buy these things. Those things also didn't make me happy. Or maybe they did give me a burst of satisfaction in the moment, but that fades pretty quickly. Especially by the time the credit card statement shows up or the car payment shows up. You're like, oh my gosh, well, why did I do this, right? 
But then consumerism shows up in other ways in our life as well. We become relationship consumers. We start using the people around us transactionally and um, consuming people. And then we consume in other areas in a way that we feel like it's going to fill me up. Mm. But what I've learned is whenever I show up somewhere empty, the stuff isn't going to fill me up. It's not going to complete me. It's not going to make me happy. The relationships also aren't going to fill me up, Mm. make me happy, complete me. The same is true with busyness. Oh, you know what? I'm so busy. Well, sometimes that's just a mask to hide like this existential angst that I experience as a consumer. Mm. And this was something, by the way, that he didn't adopt as a sort of consolation prize, consolation prize for uh, a life that was knowing, going nowhere, but he was at like the height of success in terms of social status. Everyone who looked at your life at that time would have said, you're living the life. And, and, and as you said in, in uh, the documentary, I was living the American dream, but it wasn't my dream. Hmm. Yeah, you know what's fascinating, Charlie, is I grew up really poor. Uh, co-founder of The Minimalist, Ryan and I, we've known each other since we were fat little fifth graders. He's living up in, <laughs> <laughs> he's living in Mo- Montana now. But um, we started this podcast together, our podcast together in the studio. And even before this, we started TheMinimalists.com together. And we grew up really poor. We thought we were so unhappy growing up because we didn't have any money. How do you change that? Well, you get the corporate job, you climb the corporate ladder. And by age 30, I went from being really, really poor growing up, like bottom 5% in this country, food stamps, government Mm -hmm. assistance, alcohol abuse, drug abuse in the house, physical abuse in the house. And now I'm climbing the corporate ladder. And I started making good money. By age 19, I'm in Dayton, Ohio, making $50,000 a year, more than my mom had ever made. And that wasn't enough because I was spending 65000 <laughs> mm. And so I was making okay money, but I was spending even more money. And as I got the next promotion, I'd spend even more money, more money. And I was making, by my late 20s, I was making really good money. I was the director of operations. I was in charge of 150 retail stores for a large telecom company. And I was broke in many ways. I was financially broke. I looked successful, as TK alluded to. I had the cars and the house and the stuff but it was all sort of borrowed in a way. I was borrowing from my future self to make my self of the moment happy. Mm. But and it how, wasn't how did you enjoy that job at the time? Because I know that one of the things that can happen is uh, in order to fund the lifestyle that is $65,000 on a $50,000 salary, you spend eight to 12 hours for five days a week doing something that is just soul sucking. And I, and I found myself in that position early on in my career. Sure, well, you know about it then. So what you do is you get the car And then you drive to work to pay for the car that drives you to work. Mm -hmm. And it becomes this weird, vicious cycle. I'm paying for this by going to the thing I dislike. And yeah, you're right. I was working 60, 70, 80 hours a week most weeks. But it was more than that too, right? There was a a self-perpetuating system because you were just telling me this the other day, how your boss would encourage you to become highly leveraged. You and your teammates, yeah, get that car, man. You deserve it because it would bind you to that work. Mm. Yes, yeah, yeah it, it, was a type, uh, it was a type of trickery, yeah. but he knew as soon as you bought the bigger house, you bought the nice cars, yeah. now you're tethered to him in a way. Mm. You have to perform well for him, otherwise you can't pay for those things that you just went into debt for. How, and I'm so happy to be here with you guys today because uh, I, I've moved into a large home. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> In preparation for this, I started to clear out some stuff and I realized a couple of things. One, I haven't accumulated a lot of things because the house came pre-furnished and it's all of their stuff. 
which I'm not allowed to throw out. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. I have this weird attachment to these things that aren't mine that I can't throw out. And I'm wondering if you have insight into, I know this, why is it such a hook still? Like why is the belief that maintaining a high level of stuff or status or things or space, how does that persist in the face of my lived experience? And I think of anybody who's watching this, like you have to relearn this sometimes because I don't know, is it, is it the way that humans are built? Is it the way our society is constructed? How come I have to teach myself this again? Thank you for having me, by the way, <laughs> yeah. as a result of this podcast. I mean, I think one of the fundamental human fears that we all have is the fear of being alone. Mm. And and not merely alone in the sense of, hey, I have nothing to do today and I'm by myself in the house, but a sense of being alienated. The world is opposed to us. The world is against us. And there's no faster way to feel alone than when you're out of the loop on all the conversations people are having, on all of the affirmations that people are receiving. And so one of the most difficult aspects of opting out of these social games that we all know are absolutely insane is that we also have to forego the prizes Mm. that are given to the people who play those social games well. And that's a very scary thing. And sometimes it takes a little bit of practice and a little bit of faith and a little bit of experimentation to realize that it's possible to have a healthy life, that it's possible to be fulfilled in the absence of all of that external glory that comes to those who just shut up and play basketball, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a, that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, you know, as I think through it, for me, it's I, I've been able to detach from the brands and the stuff and yeah. a lot of that. But some of those social prizes are stickier for me. Whether it's and it doesn't even have to be in the stuff. It's the I can wear my black t shirt and my sweatpants, but yeah. I like the validation. <laughs> yeah, I like yeah. I like these social prizes that come along with it. So I'm curious. If we get into, we talked a little bit at the set onset about emotional minimalism, and it seems like there's a theme behind all of this, which is a bit of lifestyle design and a bit of conscious choice of what things and energies and activities are you going to let into your life because you have some insight into how those land with you emotionally. So I'm curious what you guys have you know, implemented into your own life in terms of emotional minimalism. Yeah. Well, uh, well, one word about validation, mm. and, and we might have uh, like opposite ends of the spectrum mm. opinions on this. I think so. Uh, <laughs> I'd you curious. know, that's why I love our podcast, by the way, because yeah. TK and I disagree yeah. almost every episode, <laughs> but we do so in a way that's productive yeah. and it's not hurling insults at each other or whatever. In fact, TK often changes my mind about things. So I'm interested to hear what you're even about to say right now. So, you know, I want to validate the desire for validation. Mm. And I want to say that what is unhealthy is not the desire for validation, but rather a lot of the ideas we pick up about what's going to give us that validation and what's worth doing in order to receive it. So if you if you take a look at you know people's advice, I, I always tell my students, don't just pay attention to what people advise you, but also look at what they admire, because those are two very different things. Mm-hmm. What they advise you to do is going to be based on a host of things like fear, what they're willing to what they're willing to be held liable for, what they actually think you can do. So if I ask you for your advice, you're not just going to tell me like, hey, throw caution to the wind and go do that dream, yeah, yeah. right? Because you don't want me coming back to you and blaming you for it. Uh, but at the same time, when it comes to what we admire... It's the people that go out there and do crazy things, people who break the rules, people who surprise us, people who don't play our little games. Like we fear them at first, but then when it works, we go, oh, that's my hero. And so, yes, we play these games that we don't want to play because we want society's validation. And when we do that, 
yeah, we receive society's predictable rewards. But when we rebel against those games and we say, I am going to go my own way, that's how we become the prophets and the poets and the sages and the artists and the innovators and the creators and the revolutionaries of our time. Those are the people that actually change the world. But in the middle of the movie, that is scary as hell. Can Mm. you imagine what it would have been like to be J.K. Rowling's sister while she's in the middle of writing Harry Potter? Mm. She's on welfare. She's got a little kid. And she's showing up like in coffee shops, writing a magic book that she has no right to think is going to get published. Now, imagine that's your sister for a minute. JK, what are you doing? It's not about you. You have a kid. You know what I mean? You need to get a job. You're living. This is irresponsible. This is terrible. You pause the movie at that point. That's the advice that everybody who knows her is giving her. But what happens when she just does her thing and comes through on the other side? We hold people like that up. Oh. What an amazing writer. What an amazing entrepreneurial success story. And so for me, I mean, you got to give that validation to yourself long Mm -hmm. enough to see yourself through living the way you want to live. You got to be willing to go your own way. Um, I I forget the uh, the poet's name, but uh, there's a poem called Be Nobody's Darling. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's the way you want to live, because when you choose to be other people's darling, they'll reward you, but they also won't respect you. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out if we're actually disagreeing here, but I like this thought of validating the desire for validation Mm. because I feel like I disagree with that. Yeah. But I also understand it, viscerally understand it because my biggest drug, and I think you're alluding to this, Charlie, is wanting to be accepted by others in some Mm -hmm. way. And it probably stems from my childhood. My mom was a really bad alcoholic and I felt like, oh, maybe she doesn't love me because if she loved me enough, she might stop drinking, right? I used to come home every day after school and she would be drunk, passed out on the couch, Mm. cigarette smoke in the air, and I remember when she got sober when I was about 14, and that was strangely more terrifying than Mm -hmm. when she was drinking because now all of a sudden there was this uncertainty there. Every day I come home from school, I'm assuming she's going to be drinking again. And so I'm setting myself up for the terror of she accepts me now, but what if she doesn't accept me tomorrow or the next day or the next day? And all of the people I look up to, the sages and the heroes that TK was talking about, they don't need your validation or my validation or my acceptance or whatever. They accept themselves for who they are, whether it's Buddha or Malcolm X or Rumi the poet or whomever. The people that I look up to, they don't need me to look up to them. Mm. And strangely, that's the reason that we do look up to them. Anyone who needs us to look up to them, we're like, oh, that's kind of pathetic. And I see that in myself. I look every time I've needed veneration or applause I'm freaking pathetic for that. And that helps me let go of the desire to be liked by everyone. Because acceptance feels nice, but needing acceptance is a prison. And it feels freeing to just accept that you're not going to be accepted by everyone. Mm -hmm. Do you guys, I've recently been, uh, I would say, re-unlocking creativity. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I When I first started the Charisma on Command business, it wasn't, it wasn't J.K. Rowling levels of coffee shop, but it was sleeping on the floor. What are you doing? Quitting this job, Airbnb yeah. being my bed for five to 10 nights a month in order to make rent. Like yeah. there was, it felt, which was a, such a safe place, almost what you said with your mom. Mm-hmm. It felt like it couldn't, because I grew up in a middle-class family, it felt like it couldn't get any worse than that. Yeah. And there was a tremendous degree of safety in that, which freed me to pursue my interest, which was making these weird videos and weird blog posts about why Bill Clinton's eye contact was so good. And I wasn't even tracking <laughs> yeah. the views. I came back six months later, it's got 100,000 views on YouTube. 
And from that flows this business. Whatever years later, seven, eight years later, when I think about creativity, I think, what's the next video that I'm going to make related to charisma that other people like? And all of a sudden, there's all of these constraints that are placed on top of that. Mm -hmm. And it was only within the last two weeks that I re-got in touch with creativity and I found it doesn't do what I want it to do. (laughs) It wanted to write a fiction book about, or not a fiction, an animated screenplay, which I've never done anything like, of a fictional series set in a medieval world basically related to Dungeons and Dragons. There's no commercial reason that someone, a 36-year-old who has had success in this self-improvement industry should ever do that. Mm -hmm. But I found, and this is, I think, things that maybe people can follow, was the doing of it felt so much better than the doing of what I had been. Like what felt nice about success was the second part, was the, oh, one of 10 video, this did really well. But the making of it for a while had sort of lost that uh, self, I guess, validating experience. But the, I just feel good when I'm writing this thing. And I think that's a, a compass perhaps that other people can follow, which is if this were it, if there were no money on the other end of this, does this activity is it enough in and of itself? And I think that uh, that has been tremendously valuable for me to re-get in touch with in just the last couple of weeks. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes is uh, Howard Thurman who said, ask not yourself what the world needs, but rather what makes you come alive? For mm. that is what the world needs, mm. people who have come alive. And we can find ways to go along and get along and and do all of the predictable things that society expects of us, but we're not breathing life and vitality into the things that we do and into our interactions with people. But you know the difference. When you're talking to someone that's turned on, when you're in the presence of someone that's truly fired up and plugged in, like you can feel it. And those are the people who change things. In fact, those people sometimes can do things, create products and services, and you look at them and you're like, how are they just on fire? They're, they're ordinary. It's not like their sentences are the prettiest. It's not like they have the highest IQ. They're not the best dresser, the best looking, but they're just on fire because there's a kind of magnetism that comes from saying, I am giving you something that comes from this space within me of permissionless abundance. Like I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not creating to acquire what I don't yet have. I'm creating to let out what is in yeah. me, what is overflowing. And the world responds to that differently. So I wholeheartedly agree with this. Uh, I think there's a real spiritual truth to what you're saying, which is, are yeah, are you creating to acquire? Or did you find the stash inside of you and it is multiplying yeah. and you are sharing? Can we play, uh, what is it, devil's advocate for this? Because I think you raised yeah. a really good point about yeah. J.K. Rowling's sister. And like, what about all the failed creatives that don't make it? And then they're down on their luck and they lost. Like, how How do you think about uh, letting go of the survivor bias that might point towards somebody like J.K. Rowling and not all of the other fiction writers that tried and failed and perhaps regret it. Though I don't know any of them personally. Mm. And you won't mm. know them, right? Because yeah. you almost mm. can't know them unless you seek them out specifically. Like, can I find a person who's been writing for several decades but has never had a book published? Yeah. You can certainly find that, but you're not going to go to Barnes & Noble and find that person, <laughs> right? And and so I think what happens there is you're right. There are There is this survivor bias. Like we always hear about Steve Jobs and how he and, and the other Steve in a garage created this trillion-dollar company, right? But you don't hear about you know, Johnny Jump Up who tried <laughs> to do the same thing and it never happened. Mm. Yeah. You know, I think about the lyrics to this Seal song uh, where he says, Solitary brother, is there still a part of you that wants to live? Solitary sister, 
is there still a part of you that wants to give? And I think the question that we all have to ask ourselves is like, do I want to live authentically? Mm. Do I want to live a life that is so true to who I am that even if it doesn't work according to some societal definition of what it means to work, I can look at that life and say, yeah, that was me. It's kind of like the first time you ask out someone that you have a crush on. You go to them and you ask them out and, and maybe it doesn't work, but isn't there some kind of fulfillment, some kind of satisfaction in knowing that you chose to be courageous enough to lay it on the table and tell another human being how you felt about them? Mm. That moment doesn't have to work in order for it to mean something to you that makes future moments work, but that also makes your life right now mm. matter to a much greater degree. And so I don't think the main reason we should follow our dream, so to speak, is because it will work or because we'll get everything that we want, but rather we can't become the person that we truly are unless we are honest about the fears that we have and we step through those fears in pursuit of the life that we truly want for ourselves. If you don't have the courage to define what meaning and fulfillment and uh, satisfaction and success is for you, what are you even doing, you know? Well, it's being defined by everyone else then. Yeah. And that's why you can have a technically successful writer who has their books available in a yeah. Barnes and Noble, yeah. but they're freaking miserable. Mm -hmm. yeah. And success plus misery is failure to me. And then you can have that failed author, quote unquote failed by societal terms or metrics, or maybe they don't have a TikTok account that's viral or whatever. But they are imminently happy or fulfilled by the work that they're doing. And maybe they're simply self-publishing their books or going with a small independent press and they might sell 500 copies or 100 copies or whatever, mm. but they're enjoying, it's cliche to even say this, they enjoying the process. I, I teach a writing class called How to Write Better. And one thing I, I talk to students about is when you are writing, that is the reward. There's this old phrase I totally disagree with. The writers don't like writing. They like having written. No. Yeah. I not if you're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I get I get the sentiment where it's like, you know, if you are a construction worker and you're building a house, you may you say uh, you're a bricklayer. My brother used to be a bricklayer and he didn't like bricklaying, mm -hmm. but he liked the fact that there was this thing that had been constructed at the end of it. But because he didn't like the bricklaying process itself, he doesn't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. But if you actually enjoy writing, that is the reward. Mm. I don't really go back to my books and say, oh, yeah, I'm really, really like, I want to read this again. I already went through it. And the writing process, while it can be cathartic, it can be rewarding, it can also feel really risky. Like, what am I creating here? I don't know. But risk aversion also is reward aversion if you aren't willing to take a risk and actually sit in the chair and, and and put the words onto the page or lay the bricks down or whatever you're not going to get any of the reward that outcome of the process not the reward of the end result and now i have this bound piece of paper but i actually got the reward from the experience of of doing that is i, I love the phrase that you use permissionless abundance and i feel like that is the best answer to the devil's advocate that i raised, which because implied in the question of what if it doesn't work out is that is based on the assumption that there isn't such a thing as permissionless abundance. Abundance only comes when you receive the money, the fame, the adulation or whatever. And what you're saying is no. Hopefully, if you're out there, you've tapped into this. I know that I have in my life. There are experiences that you have where you don't you, know, you talk to the girl or whatever. And there is a permissionless, even if you don't like it, this is a 
a fulfilling experience for me to have. Do you have guidance on how you guys tap into that experience of permissionless abundance? Well, I guess my first question here is, we go back to that acceptance or veneration or needing the, um, we need other people to like us, essentially, is what it is, right? Whether it's liking us literally on a social media app, double tapping, or it is just like, I need this person to like me. What do you actually get out of that? What do I get? Yeah, what's Let's a sincere question? You know, as I've done emotional work, it's like they're doing the labor for me of liking me in a way that I am unwilling to do that that work and labor. Uh, what I have found wow. is when I sit with myself, usually if I sit long enough, there are experiences that I am resisting of memories that are painful or just bodily sensations that are painful. And it's almost like the relationship that I have with myself is like I annoy myself. I don't want to hear what you have to say aching back or I don't want to hear what you have to say painful memory. And in getting them to like me, they're doing that work of spending time with me that I won't even do. So I think this is, you mentioned Buddhism and meditation. In sitting with myself, I found that I have been able to be a friend to myself, which is I'm, I'm here for the aching back. Like I'm here for that painful memory. I, I'm willing to ride this experience out without trying to change it. And in doing that, there is less need for what you described. So all a long way of saying they're, uh, they're doing the work of loving me that I'm unwilling to do, I think, essentially. Right, mm. except that's not love either. We, exactly. We, <laughs> <laughs> it becomes transactional, yeah, right? You yeah. know, the tagline of the minimalist for the longest time now has been love people and use things because the opposite never works. And that's what we finish every podcast with. Our first Netflix film, we, we finished it with that line as well. We go out and tour. People like sing it along in unison at mm. the end almost. Yeah. And what I've realized is that for the longest time, I liked people, but I didn't love them. Mm -hmm. There's an appreciable difference. Like I can like TK if he does all of the right things in the right sequence and as long as he doesn't frustrate me. But to love him is to see him for who he is without trying to change him. And sometimes we have to love someone from a distance because we don't mm -hmm. like their behavior or we don't like the way they're treating us or maybe being in proximity to them is really harmful. And it's okay to be liked. Liking, like is a nice byproduct of doing something that's meaningful. But as soon as I need it, then I become addicted to it. I, I found when we started becoming popular and had some things on Netflix, and all of a sudden, my first inclination, I almost dipped back to my corporate days. It was, okay, how do I get more of this? Yeah. Which is rather ironic as the <laughs> minimalist. Like, I don't need more stuff, but you know what I need? I need more acceptance. Mm. Well, how weird is that? And and I think it's because of exactly what you said, and you said it so well. Like they are doing the job that I'm unwilling to do. I'm not willing to look at myself in the mirror. So instead, I'm putting a mask on and hoping mm. they'll like that mask. Mm. Yeah, and that mask is what we trick a lot of people into falling in love with. You know, like being liked. The the question really is, what foundation are you building on? It it's okay to be liked as long as it's the real you mm -hmm. that they like. But if you give up who you are in order to get someone else to like you, then they don't actually like you. They like a caricature of you. And what's the use of being liked if there's no you even around to experience it? Mm. Whatever good you bring into your life, you want to make sure you're there so you can enjoy it. But if you lost your soul in order to get someone else to like you, you don't even get to be around to enjoy the rewards of that. And so it's okay to be liked, but I want that to be built on a foundation of, number one, I like myself first. I have a clear conscience. 
you know, I, I, I like the way uh, Ahmad, the poet, puts this. He says, you can look at other people and they can have things that you don't have and you can say, I want what they have, but do you want what's on their conscience? Mm-hmm. I prefer to have what's on my conscience because I don't know what's on anyone else's conscience, right? And so these are the kinds of foundations you want to build on. But, you know, being liked is, is okay as long as it's within the proper context. But one, one more quick thing uh, um, with respect to the, the idea of, of what works and, and regret, because we just had a conversation about this yesterday. When someone says, hey, what if I choose this path and uh, what if I choose to go my own way or I do things that displease people and it doesn't work out? That question is coming from a place of, should I live the way I really want to live? Because if I do and it doesn't work, I'll regret it. Hmm. And that's a very one-dimensional way of thinking about regret because regret isn't just about something not working for you. Regret can also be about succeeding at things you never really cared about. Mm-hmm. Regret can also be waking up at your amazing life where you win all the awards and you get all the praise and you say, yeah, but I used all my good years mastering a game that I never enjoyed playing. Hmm. And so regret is regret is something that can happen with success as well. And so your own failures are much easier to live with when they belong to you. You chose them. It's a lot easier to be wrong when you're like, well, I thought it was that way. I made the left turn and I was wrong. But it's a lot harder to fail when someone else says, you should go left. And you're like, no, I know it's this way. And they're like, no, you should go that way. And you don't want to please them. And you just go way out of your way. And then you realize you're wrong. Oh, that's hard to live with. You're (laughs) mad because what are you going to regret? Not so much that you took a wrong turn, but I should have listened to myself. And then on the successful side, you go someone else's way. You get there. You're like, "Uh, I don't know if I really wanted this. What Hmm. about that other thing? What would my life be like had I tried? And so oftentimes trying and it not working will either lead to failures that are easier to live with and that will produce wisdom and maturity and clarity of insight, or it produces produces success that you can live with. Whereas when you live someone else's life for you, it either produces a success that you can't live with or failure that's difficult to live with because you didn't listen to yourself. Hmm. The listening to yourself I've found at various points in my life has been so hard because you get so far, or I have gotten so far away from myself. And for instance, it's, you know, if you're in a consulting job, you're like, I don't like this. And you start, well, maybe I should do accounting, or maybe I should do business management, or maybe it's sports. And you're so far away from yourself that even radical, what feel like radically different options, well, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel right. Like you're out in right field looking for home plate. <laughs> and home plate is, I want to be a teacher, or I want to write books, or I want to make movies, or something else. And I found, I think that this is one of the, the there's sometimes a necessary period of collapse and destruction, because you mentioned building this version of your life that is based on a mask. Yeah. The deeper you get there, you can be in a marriage, you could be at a career, you can have children. The farther down this path you go, the more necessary a collapse is. It's a necessary piece of finding your way back to the thing that lights you up, because you might have to end that marriage or the financial you know, success you've gotten used to is gonna have to go down tremendously compared if you'd, if you'd made that turn a little bit earlier in your career. I just wanna highlight that because I felt that it's gotten harder the farther that I've gotten away from myself. And it's always been, I mean, for me, it's, I've taken you know psychedelics and that sort of thing has been the radical shift. But for some people it can be religion or therapy or a friend that just shakes you out and goes, what the heck are you doing? Uh, yeah, that sometimes it's so far away that it that it doesn't even occur to you that that's where you might be found. I think it's almost always about 
putting yourself in an unbearable situation. Because what happens is, for the longest time, when you are in these bearable situations that you don't enjoy, it's just like, yeah, you know what? It's not a big deal. Mm. It's uh, My life's a 6 out of 10. I've got that accounting job. And yeah, now I'm going to move over to slightly pivot in this career. And it's still not being the teacher or the poet or whomever that I want to be. Uh, and what happens is it's bearable enough and you don't want to become so uncomfortable. You don't want to make things unbearable. But when something happens, a tragedy, like for example, with me, the whole the reason I stumbled into minimalism is my mom died and my marriage ended both in the same month. Mm. And I just started looking around and like, oh, why have I given so much meaning to all of this? The material possessions, the status, the big house, the square footage. And there's nothing wrong inherently with any of those things. I'm not demonizing square footage. I'm not demonizing material possessions. What I realized is I was following someone else's template to a T. The American dream, as TK talked about earlier, turned out to be either a nightmare or at least it just wasn't my dream, right? What's a dream for one person can be a nightmare to someone else. And what I thought was a dream was a dream that was sort of handed to me by someone else. And these two events happen. My mom dies, my marriage ends. And I start looking around saying, huh, is this my definition of success? And clearly it wasn't. It was someone else's definition. And there's nothing wrong with templates. I think templates are, are they're really useful, like a recipe. If you pick up a recipe book and then you've got the ingredients, you've got the sequence, you know exactly how long you need to cook it, whatever it might be, great. That is your template. But you can also adjust for taste. And if you don't adjust for your own taste, what happens? You might end up eating something that it just doesn't taste very good to you. And that's what happened to me. I was living a life that didn't taste very good to me, but it was bearable. It mm. was comfortable. And those two things happened. I realized, like, no, this is not where I want to be. In fact, I'm going to have to make myself really comfortable. I walked away from my corporate career that year. It was 2011. And uh, we had just started The Minimalists in 2010. And... I made $23,000 that first year. I made twenty nine the first year. There you go. <laughs> so I took a 90% a, a pay cut. Yeah. Here's the weird thing. Two, two weird things. One is I was more financially free that year mm. because I had to radically rein in my spending. But I also realized like it wasn't permanent, although I now know I could do that right now. I could go back to making $23,000 right now and I'd find a way to do it. And you become free then because you realize like, oh, I'm able to do that. Like all of these things that I thought I needed to do, I don't actually need to do them. What do I want to do? What makes me come alive? Because maybe that's a beacon in the direction in which I want to travel. What, I'm so curious, uh, we've talked broadly, what does make you come alive and you as well, TK? Writing by far is like, yeah, I started out writing fiction throughout my 20s. It was almost an escape reading and writing fiction. And uh, when Ryan came to me, he was my best friend forever. And he still has. We've known, known each other for 32 years. He just moved back to Montana. And um, he came to me when I was 30. And all those things had happened to me. And he said, hey, I know you've been writing for a while. Um, you've been simplifying your life. I've been simplifying my life. Do you want to write about this online? Mm. And so we, that's where we started the minimalists.com. Mm. It was just like an online journal. It was a blog that was just, hey, here's some recipes of what we're doing. And maybe it'll resonate with some people. And it did. And so I took that love for writing and just pivoted slightly to 
communicative and expressive nonfiction. That writing. is so similar to what I did. That's fascinating. I, I was a uh, lit minor because it didn't make sense to be a lit minor. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and creative writing was my favorite class that I had. Yeah. And I had all of these half-written pieces about the emptiness of my corporate life and all of this kind of stuff. There you go. So I was putting them online. I'm doing it. And it took a while and it, there needed to be some adaptation to make it palatable for an audience. But that that was a connective tissue for me as well. Yeah, and so I still write every day and um, that is the thing that makes me feel alive. But I've become vehicle agnostic over the last 13 years. Like mm. writing's one great way to communicate with people. And I've realized though there are other great ways for us to communicate. We started this podcast to help promote our first documentary. Mm. It ended up being the opposite. When that first documentary came out, it was a bunch of people flooded into the podcast, mm. right? And so when we did that, um, I realized like, oh, it's really about adding value to people's lives in some way. Now, I can't determine what adds value to your life or TK's life or Danny's life or Sean or Mallory. I don't know what adds value, but if I create something that is mine, that adheres to my own standards, it turns out a lot of people find value. And when someone finds value in something, they share it with their friends, family, loved ones, etc. And so whether it's going out on a speaking tour, we've done 10 tours in the last dozen years, we've uh, done 400 plus episodes of the podcast. We've made a few films. I enjoy creating things that add value to people's lives. Mm. And the vehicle matters less to me now. Writing is still that that foundational thing that I enjoy the most, but I also enjoy creating things that add value. Mm. Yeah. Before I answer that question, I, I got to comment on something that you both said. You talked about getting far away from yourself and then having to reconnect with what truly mattered to you and you were talking about the listening thing. The most important thing about listening to yourself is remembering that it requires that you actually listen. Yeah. You know, if Josh came up to me and he was like, hey, TK, what do you think? And I go, yeah. And he says, well, uh, I was wondering if and I go, sure, sounds good. And he says, well, hear me out, man. I was wondering if and I go, no, OK, never, never mind. Well, I'm not listening to him. What I'm doing is I'm finishing his sentences for him or I'm predicting where he's going to go and then responding to that. And that's often what we do with ourselves and we slap the label listening on it. We react to the first thought or creative impulse that comes to mind. But listening is really about creating the space where you can go within and you can understand your inner voice in a way that's deeper than the superficial reactions to external stimuli that pop into the heart and mind you know, uh, at whim. There, there's an old saying in the uh, monastic tradition that if you have a mystical experience while you are meditating, ignore it and continue to move forward. Because the goal is to not get stuck at the level of being bedazzled by some mystical experience. The goal is to press onward towards enlightenment, towards awareness. And sometimes the, the things that we see along in the way can distract us. And that's what deep listening is like. You got to mm. go within and you got to say, I'm going to listen to myself past the first idea that comes up because there is a deep well within me. And if I'm present, I create space for it. Just like a relationship to someone else, I can create some real intimacy here if I just invest in that time. So we get far away from ourselves long before we spend five years doing work that we don't want to do. Mm. We get far away from ourselves the moment we say, it's okay to ignore myself. I'll get to myself later. I'm going to stay busy and I'm going to get after something, you know, and continue to play society's game. Anyway, just a thought on listening. Let's what? let's stay there because I yeah. love this. I think this is, and I still want to hear what you have yes. to say about what wakes you up. I'm just learning 
to yeah. listen, I would say. It's funny because I, I teach charisma and we've never done a video on listening. Oh, wow. <laughs> and and yeah. it's, I, I think it's indicative of not just me, but like the society in which I grow yeah. up, with, which rewards clear speaking and big gesticulation and all of these things, which definitely do invite positive things and good interactions into your life. And it's not that I couldn't listen on the superficial level that almost anyone can listen to carry a conversation, but that deep listening, which is, my goodness, how does one learn to do that in your experience? How did you learn to do that? Because it is does not come natural, I think, to many people. I did not grow up with many people that were capable of doing that. In fact, I would say I had one friend that that sort of came naturally too, but everyone else struggled tremendously. And I would say it's disarming too. TK is a deep listener. Mm. And sometimes it can be really disarming because we're so programmed to have someone react. As soon as I say something, I expect you to react. Remember the time we had Kapil Gupta on the podcast? Yeah. And there was, I mean, the most deep listening I've ever done, but there was probably a 90 second pause yeah. During one of the, I mean, in that we was just, the best moment too. It really was <laughs> because it was there was this listening, but not reacting. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed that with you, TK, is like as soon as we're reacting to what everyone says, mm. it is like a balloon that the air has been let out of, mm. and it just go here, go here, go here, go here. But if you just pause and listen, like genuinely. You're listening to the ripples that that stone throw caused. It's not just, all oh, the, the stone went in there and I'm going to dive in and grab it. You're watching the ripples. And I noticed TK does that really well. Well, you know, I appreciate that. Even when we fail to listen well, even when we are reactive in ways that we don't want to be, that too can become the object of listening. Mm. We can sit with that and say, oh, okay, let me... Be present to that. I don't have to judge myself for that. I don't have to feel terrible about it. That's where I'm at. What's coming up for me when I attend to that? Osho tells the story of a man who liked to take walks at night and meditate. And so he's walking and uh, and there's a guy who's standing outside of this big, beautiful building uh, surround, surrounded you know, with the gate, a gated community. And uh, and he, he asks the, the meditator, he says, what are you doing? And the guy says, oh, I'm just walking. And he says, uh, where are you going? He goes, oh, no place in particular. He's like, so you just walk for no purpose? And he goes, well, I don't know if it's no purpose, but I guess you could say that. And he says, so what do you do? And the guy says, gee, I, I don't know how to describe it. He was like, uh, what do you do? And the guy says, oh, I'm a guard. And he says, what does a guard do? He says, well, I stand outside this place and I watch it. And he says, why do you watch it? And he says, well, maybe something happens and I need to tend to it. And the guy says, well, what if nothing happens? And he says, well, it's still important for me to watch because then I can confirm. And he says, that's it. That's what I do. He says, I too am a watcher. He says, but I watch the palace of my own soul and I tend to what's there. And sometimes nothing happens, but those moments are important too. And, you know, deep listening is about creating that space. I talk about this in Emotional Clutter. Um, a, a, a rabbi, and I was reading on a book on meditation, he says, he calls it noble boredom. And, and an important aspect of meditation is learning to rest in the restlessness that comes up for us when our subconscious says, hey, man, we've been sitting here for 15 minutes. We, we could have read three pages by now. Yeah. We could have listened to two chapters by now. 
Like uh, we could have taken 20 steps by now. And that feels like progress because at least with a book, I can see how many pages I'm covering. At least with something I'm listening to, I can see how many songs. We want something that we can measure, but that immeasurable space, making contact with immeasurable inner space requires you to take away that measuring mind that needs to you know, rate it in terms of progress. And so setting aside time to say, I'm going to sit with myself as a daily practice for this amount of time, even if nothing comes up, because the goal isn't to generate something mm-hmm. exciting. It's to learn the art of attention, you know? Wow. I, the, the phrase that really stuck out to me was uh, the palace of my own inner experience yeah. or something that I think uh, you put guards out and you watch things that matter, right? We yeah. don't put guards out for our trash or anything like that. Yeah. And it, if you treat yourself like that, you turn your own inner world from a trash can that doesn't matter and is worse than a couple of books or two chapters of a a podcast or whatever that you could have listened to, to a palace. You say that this is worth watching, even if nothing happens, because I I have felt that, that there's this this circular relationship of self-love, which is, yes, there are practices, but the things that these practices imply about what must be going on inside are very powerful as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally, man. You know, it's interesting because when, when my wife and I first started dating, we have these conversations and, and, and sometimes I'd say something or I'd ask her something and she'd just have nothing to say. And then I'd just talk some more. And then I wonder, why does my wife never talk? And I realized because you're not listening. Well, wait a minute. I, I am listening. I, I ask her a question and then I wait 10 seconds, which is a reasonable amount of time for me. No, she's a slower processor, a deep processor. She takes a lot of time. And if you watch a conversation with my wife and I today versus what it looked like we were first dating, man, it's laughably different. Mm. Because now when I say something and I ask a question, I know to be quiet. And I know that if there's nothing but quiet for a minute and a half, that's okay. Mm. Something's coming. But I don't need to like rush into it. And, And that's kind of what listening to ourselves is like, right? You listen as long as you think there is something there worth listening to. And there's always substance in the soul. You know, Mm. there's more in our own souls than we can actually handle if we tend to it. But sometimes when it doesn't come quickly, we we dismiss it as if it offers us nothing. Mm. TK has a, a superpower and it's curiosity. And I think that aids him in that deep listening because when I say curiosity, I mean genuine curiosity. I don't mean surface level, you know, oh, who's uh, who's going to get the Republican nod this year or whatever? Like, none of that. Definitely not that. No, definitely not that. <laughs> but um, what what happens is he gets really curious and he asks questions that aren't accusatory and they aren't leading. They're opening up in a way. And I don't have that same superpower. Mine is obsession, which is a different thing from mm. curiosity. Mm. It, it's like if I get interested in something... I'm not just going to w- read the Wikipedia article. I'm going to follow every link in that article, and it's mm. going to take me down all of these different rabbit holes. And I'm going to buy the whole bibliography. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to get obsessed about one thing, and TK will get curious uh, on this thing, and then this thing, and it'll lead him in these different places. And I notice that really helps with his ability to really not just listen, but understand what's going on in someone else mm. without needing to change them, without needing to persuade them or convince them or argue with them and prove that he's right. Like I know TK has some viewpoints that he and I just don't agree on, 
But it's never like, you should change your mind, Josh. You should think differently. In fact, the superpower that I've learned through minimalism is there's nothing that must be done right now. Mm. Literally nothing must be done right now. Society tells us and hands us a bunch of shoulds, right? You should graduate from college. You should get a 30-year mortgage on a house. It should be 3,000 square feet. You should have a two-and-a-half-car garage in which you keep two cars and then storage for all of your excess things. You should have 300,000 items in your home. You should consume. You should have a little bit of credit card debt because some debt is good debt, right? And there are all of these shoulds, and we end up in this land of holding on to the shoulds, but there are no shoulds. Like I just pick these up. These are someone else's expectations. They hand them to me and they're weighing me down. There are no shoulds, but there are infinite coulds. There are a lot of things I could do. I could go into debt. I don't like that, though. Why would I want to do that, right? I could buy a big house, but maybe that's not appropriate for me. I could buy a tiny house. I know that's not appropriate for me either. Even as one of the minimalists, I've got a wife and a daughter, and living in a tiny house with them sounds awful to me, (laughs) right? And so what is appropriate for me? And there's nothing that must be done right now, nothing that should be done. But there's a list of coulds that I can embark on. But the only way I can do that is if I get a little curious, not about what everyone else's should is that they're handing to me, but, hmm, what do I want? Hmm. And we never even stop to ask that. You, you, you talked earlier about the wanting, the validation. But is that actually what I want? That's why I asked, like, what do you get out of that? Because it's not the validation I want ever. Maybe I want that pleasant feeling. Oh, okay. So I just want to be pleased. I want to be a, uh, a hedonist because ultimately that's what it is. Like I have friends and this is not dissing anyone because I see the same pathetic thing in me. I have friends who are like, look, I just got a million followers on this app. And they post the screenshot. Look, thanks so much for following me. And it's like, first off, it's utterly meaningless in more ways than one. One is like, 30,000 of those are bots, so maybe it's not even actually a million yet. But also, like, what do you get out of it? Mm. And maybe you do get something. I don't know. Maybe that... uh, But the number itself is arbitrary. And we start defining success with metrics. It's like asking me... Hey, Josh, why do you love your wife? And I'm like, well, she's 5'10", and uh, she weighs 150 pounds, (laughs) and, um, you know, uh, she has curly hair and green eyes. And I'm like, okay, but that you just described, like, 18 million people. Um, That can't be why you love her. Those are just metrics, right? And metrics or measurements are helpful, but they're certainly not a measurement of our well-being or of our love or our acceptance or our contentment. Hmm. The metric thing is uh, so, I don't know if corrosive is the word. I think so. (laughs) And perhaps it, you know, there's a number of thinkers that I admire. I don't know if you guys are familiar with someone named Daniel Schmachtenberger or these. That name's familiar. They they talk about um, some of the foundational issues in the way capitalism, the economy, and that sort of things are structured. And one of the things that I know comes through in my life is any time that you reduce something to a metric, which by the way is like the number one thing that you'll be told if you're running a business is you need your KPIs, you need to look at your metrics. You get focused on optimizing that metric and you will drive that number up and some of the things that correlate with that will drive as well. But if you look at the economy or the world writ large, if we're trying to, for instance, I'll give you even a a well-intentioned example that I just discovered. Are you guys familiar with effective altruism? Yes. 
So it's William the, McCaskill? Yeah. It's the idea that if you're going to give to charity, what you ought to do is consider the impact of what you do. So rather than you know just giving uh, $1,000 in your local community, maybe that could go farther in Africa. And so what they've done is they figured out which institutions create the most lives saved per dollar. And one of them is the uh, Against Malaria Fund, which buys nets for mosquitoes for people in Africa and prevents malaria you know, transmission, which is noble and I've donated them before. The criticism of this is when you reduce it to such a simple metric as lives saved or whatever, you miss the broader context, which is, well, why are people dying of malaria there? Well, it's because we cut down all the trees and now there's all these you know, still bodies of water that the mosquitoes are in. Well, why do we do that? Well, because there's a war going on in this country and all the people had to migrate to the area where this is occurring. And so when you start to optimize for this metric, and I'm trying to be a good person, I'm giving my money to the Against Malaria Fund to buy all of these nets to protect people from mosquitoes, when the people are in a place that maybe they shouldn't even be because there's a war that's happening and there's mosquitoes yeah, that oughtn't even yeah. be there, and we lose the world for the metric. Yeah. And I have seen that happen. I know that you guys, you know, you're on YouTube. If you look in YouTube studio, one of 10, two of 10, that drives me nuts looking sure. at how the latest video did because mm -hmm. it doesn't track so many other valuable things in my life. Did I enjoy that podcast? And I have lost track of, well, that podcast did really well. And I forget, did, did, I, sit, did I enjoy <laughs> that one yeah. to the degree that I have some of the other ones? So uh, you just mentioned the word metric. And, and I know that that has been something that I've wrestled with. Well, aren't we incentivized in all of these ways, too? There's a reason we don't run any ads on our podcast, mm. and we don't monetize our YouTube channel. And the reason we don't is because I don't want to be captured. Well, it's one of the reasons we don't is I don't want to be captured by, okay, how many views do I need to get in order to earn enough money to make these videos or mm -hmm. whatever? Um, not that I think advertisements are inherently evil or um, it's not a moral stance. We just don't. The other reason I don't do it is I just don't like advertisements but um tk i'm interested because tk is the uh economist on the podcast he's yeah. the director of education for an organization called fee it's the uh, foundation for economic education and so he's our resident uh, numbers guy um what, what are your thoughts because metrics do seem to have i mean they have some value for sure right? when we are measuring, but quite often it's almost like we're measuring the wrong things. You know, it's like how many teaspoons of love do you have for your wife? It doesn't even make sense, and yet we try to find ways to measure the immeasurable. Yeah, you know, my observation on metrics is similar to uh, George Lakoff's observation on metaphors. They they have a dual function. They simultaneously reveal and conceal. Hmm. They highlight certain qualities, bringing them forward, making it easier to think about them, and that's very important. But they also push other qualities back and make it a little more difficult to see them. So when we speak of life as a journey, that's very useful. There are some aspects of life that appear to be a journey, and it's quite all right to use that metaphor. But what happens when we forget about all the other possible metaphors? what happens is we mistake the metaphor for the thing itself, hmm. and then our thinking around them, our way of living in engagement with them becomes one-dimensional. So, all right, yeah, life is a journey. Life is also a battle. Life is also a dance. Life is also a song and a poem, and it's a whole bunch of other things I can't really think of. Yeah, time is money, but time is also not money. Time is also something intangible that can never be spent or saved or earned. Right. Time is many things. Right. Time is many things. Love is many things. Yeah. An argument is kind of like a war in some respects, but there are other respects where it's more like choreography, you know. And so what happens to my life when I begin to 
introduce new metaphors, my thinking around it expands and I become more multidimensional in the way that I engage them. And the same is true of metrics. What we measure, we measure for a reason because there's usually some kind of economic incentive. You know, um, you know, I, I work for a nonprofit and when people invest in what we do, they want to know, all right, how do I know you're even achieving this vision? What's something I can measure? And you can't tell them, well, I feel really good about my work. Or these people over here think <laughs> that we're helping them. Well, how do we know? Like, are, are they going to create something? Are they going to fill out a survey? Or are they going to go do something in the world that's connected to what you taught them? Give me something concrete that I can measure so that I can know that my support of you is going in a positive direction. And then you got to go to the drawing board and you got to come up with something concrete. And what always happens is you once you find the metric that means something to the person that's supporting you, you've had to eliminate a whole bunch of other intangibles that can't be captured in a survey or in something that can be documented. And there could be all sorts of ways on the ground you're changing lives, but you just can't measure that. And that's okay as long as you don't mistake the measurement for the thing, you know, the ruler for the thing that you're measuring. Mm. I had a real problem with that when TK first came on board. We had been working with TK for years. He was he had been a guest on the podcast like 11 times, and eventually we were like, hey, why don't you just move back out to California and uh, and just be you know, the third minimalist? And um, when he first came out, because he works for Fee, and they like metrics. Mm. And he came to me and he was like, hey, can you just like share the metrics with me? I'm like, I have... Uh, we don't do that. Like, he, I don't he didn't even... know what they were. <laughs> I was like, wait, you don't, you don't know how many views we had last month? He had no clue. Yeah. <laughs> and then so we had Professor Sean start putting some stuff, some metrics together monthly. And I was blown away. I'm like, oh my God, I didn't know we had that many views or down or whatever. Like I knew loosely, occasionally I see stuff. I don't, I don't avoid it. But also I realized that it's also harmful to renounce something. Yeah. Just like I don't renounce material possessions because then you're forever tied to your material possessions. Uh, I don't renounce the metrics either. I just don't use them as either the primary measurement, nor do I use them as, well, maybe here's a better metaphor. They're in the car, but I don't let them behind the wheel. Mm. Because metrics alone can be a drunk driver, and they're going to steer <laughs> us somewhere where we really don't want to go. Yeah, I, I, uh, part of the reasons that I drifted from minimalism was the recognition of the renunciation of something being potentially, maybe not as much, but as attached as the uh, more obvious clinging to yeah. something. Being attached to be to detachment. <laughs> yeah, and and for me it was letting material abundance, part of why I moved to the home that is large and has all these things, which I'm glad that I did, I don't regret, was letting material abundance into my life mm -hmm. and, and not saying I have to not have this because if I, it's only through the not having of this that I am safe from its clutches. Yeah. And I think it is, it's almost been, uh, it's something that I'm still sorting through and working with, which is, can I experience a deep appreciation, enjoyment when I look around this home that I didn't build, that these people put all of their stuff and their love into? It, you can feel it if you're in there. It's got their yeah. love in this. Yeah. Some of it is kitschy, but it's like yeah. their love is in this home. And I've felt it on various occasions. And when I step on the soft freaking carpet, it's just, oh my God. Yeah. Can I appreciate this? without fearing it being taken. And it, for me, that's been almost a spiritual practice because where I felt safe was somebody sleeping in my bed because I'm Airbnb it, I'm on the ground, can't get any worse than this. It's, yeah. can I enjoy material abundance without 
the fear of it being taken from me. And that is that has been a challenge. Well, what you're talking about there is you were able to bear the unbearable, like mm. sleeping on the floor while someone else is paying five <laughs> or 10 bucks to sleep <laughs> in your bed. I totally get that. You said, you know what? I can bear this unbearable thing for a while. And you realize how elastic that discomfort zone is. And as that discomfort zone grows, you grow as well. But it's funny because I totally agree. I think if you came to my house now, you wouldn't walk in and say, oh my God, this guy's a minimalist. Mm. You'd say, wow, this family's really tidy. Mm. We don't own a whole lot of stuff, but I have all the regular stuff. I've got the couch and the coffee table and the credenza, and I have a bed, and you know we have a dining table and chairs and a regular kitchen and kitchen utensils and appliances. The difference is I don't have access. I don't have junk. Um, we have something called the minimalist rule book. It's 16 rules for living with less. They're not really rules. They're just these boundaries. And the funny thing about boundaries is when we set them up appropriately, they actually increase our freedom. Because if you don't have any boundaries at all ever, that's not freedom. That is like, it's a weird kind of tyranny. You're, if you don't have any boundaries, you know, if I don't, when my daughter was five years old, if I didn't give her any boundaries, she'd go play in traffic, right? We need some boundaries. Just like we need walls in our house. That's how your house is defined by those boundaries. Mm-hmm. But if I put a wall down the middle of your living room and the wall down the middle of your bedroom, you'd be like, this is constrictive. You used that word earlier, constrictive. But boundaries, when done well, they actually are freeing because it keeps the things out that you want out, the distractions or the, um, the excess that prevents us from living well. And it allows us to have the space in which we roam freely. So if you walk into my house, you're not going to say, oh my God, this guy's a minimalist. You say, wow, it's a, a tidy family. And in that minimalist rule book, what we identified which people can download for free on our website, but it's just 16 rules for living with less. And one of them is what we call the no junk rule. It's really simple. Everything you own or everything you're even thinking about purchasing can fit in one of three piles. It's either essential, it's non-essential, but it adds value, or it's junk. We all have the same essentials for the most part. We all need some clothes, we need food, shelter, transportation, education, vocation, but even those things manifest differently. There are some people who have their PhD. There are other people like my brother who went to vocational school. That's education, right? Transportation. Professor Sean took the bus here today. I drove a Toyota here, whatever. Other people drive a Maserati. Like It's fine. Um, We all have the same essentials. They look a little bit different. The non-essentials are the things that enhance our life. And quite often, people get confused. They think of minimalism as having only the essentials and getting rid of everything else. Mm-hmm. But strictly speaking, I don't need my couch. I could live without it. Hell, I could live without my bed. You've proven that, right? <laughs> you can live without it, but why would I deprive myself of that? I'm a minimalist. I'm not a deprivationist. Mm-hmm. And so I own things that add value to my life. The problem is this third category, the junk. Most of the things we own They get in the way of the things that add value to our lives. And that is what clutter is. I love the experiment you're talking about because what you're saying is, can I appreciate these things without needing them? And you know that you can because last time you went to LACMA and you're in the museum and you see this Picasso painting, Mm -hmm. you don't like try to take it off the wall and take it (laughs) home with you, right? And in fact, you don't leave there saying, oh, I'm incomplete without that Picasso painting. No, you say, wow that's stunning, or wow, that's ugly, or whatever, but you're able to appreciate it without needing to consume it. When we first started TheMinimalists.com, I was looking for something to write about, and I, don't, I never did New Year's resolutions, but 
it was the very beginning of a new year, and we were just a few weeks into the, the blog. And I said, you know, I need a New Year's resolution. I'm going to resolve to not buy anything new this year. Nothing at all for Whoa. one entire year. I'm one of the minimalists. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. And it wasn't because of the lack of purchase. It was because I was so trained by impulse to do what? I walk into a store. Oh, I didn't even know I needed that, but now I feel like I need it. I guess I could buy it. Even if I can't buy it right now, I can put it on a credit card and boom, now I bring it home with me, right? And so what would happen? The first, it was about the first five months. I go into a store. I want to get that. Oh, wait, I can't. Damn, I really want it. I, I guess I can't. You know, I'll think about it. Leave it on the shelf. And eventually, over the course of five months, I go and say, oh, I really like, oh, yeah, I can't. Eventually, I'd walk in the store and I'd say, oh, I really like that. Wow, hmm. I just like it. Hmm. I don't have to have it. I don't have to consume it. I don't have to own it. It won't complete me. I can like it, but it's not a piece yeah. of me. That's a superpower, I think, if you can look at the world and appreciate things without needing to own them. I mean, you can, like, all of a sudden, Target becomes a museum, right? You just yeah. walk in there yeah. and you appreciate all the beautiful pieces of art right, that yeah. you're not going to take home with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. By the way, consumerism basically says, hey, TK, hey, Charlie, hey, Josh, there's something that you need right now. And you don't know what it is, but that's all right. Everything's okay until you find out what it is. Mm -hmm. Then you're not okay. That's mm -hmm. crazy. Mm -hmm. You mentioned medieval times earlier because you had a <laughs> fiction novel. Um, I'm currently fascinated with the Middle Ages. And I, I learned something interesting recently that uh, relates to the uh, renunciation and, and simplicity. So one of the things that flourished in the Middle Ages was monastic communities. And two of the most popular, the Franciscans and the Dominicans, both vowed to live lives of simplicity for two very different reasons. For the Franciscans, simplicity was about renouncing the world and seeking poverty as a path to salvation. It was a way to live out the idea that if you want to be perfect, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and go live a holy life. The Dominicans, on the other hand, were a teaching order. They were a monastic order formed for the purpose of educating, and what was more important to them than anything else was to retain the flexibility to go wherever they were needed, whenever they were needed. And so they also took vows of simplicity because it was pivotal to their mission. And so you have one group as a way of renouncing the world. The other group, simplicity, was a way of maintaining the flexibility necessary to fulfill their mission. There are some areas of simplicity in life that might be based on a little renunciation. I can look at certain things and I say, I want no part of that because I mm -hmm. think that's unhealthy. But not everything has to be in that category. There are other things where you can say, I can totally have that. And I probably have a good time. And I wouldn't have to apologize to anybody in order to indulge in that. But you know what? It's just going to compromise my flexibility. It's just going to distract me unnecessarily. And that's one of the problems, to get back to your original question, that minimalism, prob uh, minimalism addresses. And that is, we all feel so compromised. We've got so much that we want to do, so much that we want to be for ourselves, for our families. And we feel so compromised. If you go up to just about anybody and say, forget what I think or anyone else thinks, what do you want to do that you aren't already doing? Everybody's going to have an answer. Mm -hmm. People are going to say something like, ah, I, I personally like to work out a little more, read a little more, eat a little healthier. Everybody's got something. And then you say, well, why aren't you doing that right now? 
And, and they'll give you a litany of reasons for why they feel compromised. Well, mm-hmm. I'm not flexible because of this. I'm not flexible because of that. And minimalism is about saying, how can I strategically introduce simplicity into my life so that I'm not so compromised, so that I can optimize for the things that matter most to me? And when you look at it that way, you no longer start looking at people as minimalist versus non-minimalist. You look at people as artists who are all making allies with simplicity in their own unique way. And now everybody becomes someone who is a fascinating case study, a fascinating person to talk to. Mm. You look at a Steph Curry, you probably look at his house or his shoes and would say, well, he's not a minimalist, but talk to him about his three-point shot and how he got so good at that. Talk to him about his dribbling skills and why he's such a great basketball player. And then you start to see this laser-like focus come in. And then you start to have a conversation with him about all the things that he's got to block out Mm -hmm. and ignore and eliminate from his life in order to be great at the few things that he wants to be great at. And you see a person who has made an ally with simplicity for the purpose of optimizing for something that's important to him. That's minimalism. It's not about the label you wear. It's Mm -hmm. not about the philosophy you purport to subscribe to. It's about the way you leverage simplicity to be a human being that's free from the things that compromise your flexibility. Hmm. I love that. The, uh, yeah, it's, it can, the word to some people, and I know I don't carry this anymore, but it can feel self-flagellating and I appreciate you highlighting all of that. Um, I wanted to come back though to what brings you alive. Oh man. I'm like Josh in that my relationship to that question has evolved quite a bit. You know, if you had asked me, what do you do? A few years ago, I truly would have listed not my job titles, but at least my creative projects. You know, you ask me now, I'm going to say things like I talk to my parents on the phone. Mm. I take more. I take walks with my wife every day. You know, um, I like to go to morning mass. You know, I I would say things like that. I like to talk with Professor Sean about books. I didn't know I needed until he (laughs) tells me about them. You know, um, what makes me come alive? Man, it's it's engaging the people that I love in, in meaningful ways, you know, and it's engaging interesting ideas. And I think stuff like this and, and teaching is, is a way to do that. Because when you're teaching or when you're podcasting, you get to connect with interesting people. You get to discuss interesting ideas. You get to learn new things. And then you get to take that out into the world because we're all infected by each other's energy in constructive ways, right? We get to leave this conversation being slightly different in ways that aren't easily detectable. But you can you can see the clues like, oh, man, like ever since we had Dr. Omar on the show, ever since we had that interview with Charlie, I've been a little more sensitive to this, a little more sensitive to that. And just that kind of thing makes me come alive. So. If I had to boil it down to something that sounds like a passion or an occupation, I might say something like teaching and storytelling, mm. which are really just two different ways of saying the same thing. I thought you were going to say metrics. <laughs> <laughs> just view counts mostly. View counts. Making lots of money. <laughs> the algorithm. <laughs> so I, I saw online and you had mentioned, do you, you teach entrepreneurship? Or something around entrepreneurship. Yeah, 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 that's right. You want to talk about the company you founded? Yeah, so um, several years ago, I co-founded an apprenticeship program called Praxis. And the goal of Praxis was and continues to be uh, to help aspiring young uh, professionals launch their careers uh, with or without a college degree. And um, 
at that time, our premise was so controversial, and now it's almost boringly obvious to people because the world has changed that much in about you know seven, eight years since we uh, co-founded the, the program. But, but essentially, we reject the narrative that in order to be a player in the world, in order to have a successful career, in order to have a thriving life, that you must have a college degree. For anyone who feels like, I'm committed to going to college and this is what I want to do with my life, have at it and enjoy your life. There's no condemnation of you. But for the many people out there who are made to feel like if you don't have a degree, no matter what it is you wanna do, independently of any other conditions, you are in danger. Uh, we wanted to provide an alternative to that narrative. and um, But the, the, the problem is for many people, not going to college also means not doing anything at all. And if not going to college means watching SpongeBob reruns all day, then yeah, you need to go to college. If not going to college means mm -hmm. you're just gonna sit around at mom and dad's place and be like, well, I'm just gonna chill, then yeah, you might need college. Many people who want to opt out don't have anything else they could do. And so what we created was an apprenticeship program where they can not only learn value creation and life skills through an entrepreneurial boot camp, but where they can actually go work at startups and get real world experience mm. and launch their careers in that way. And so we've helped several hundred young people launch their careers and are, are really going on to do amazing things, making way more money in the first three, four years of their career than I think I made in my first decade. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, which is a really awesome thing. That's, that's, that's how you want to, that's a metric you want to use for success. I'm our, my customer's doing better than me. That's a good metric. <laughs> that's a great one. <laughs> well, also uh, TK, talks to a lot of schools now with the work he does at Fee, and maybe you could talk a bit about that, because one of my favorite things that, uh, that TK does is he's able to go talk to young people about the values of simplicity, but he does so in a way that I think they're able to identify with. Yeah, you know, so I, I, I like to make the distinction between entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial thinking. You know, entrepreneurship is about maybe founding a startup or something along those lines, whereas entrepreneurial thinking is about adopting the way of thinking that entrepreneurs have to embody in their work and applying that to every aspect of mm. life, right? And so um, that involves approaching your life as art, being an innovator in your relationships, in your schoolwork, in your everyday decisions. And so I, I, I travel the country talking with different schools about how to apply the essence of entrepreneurial thinking to all the different concerns that they have at that age, but also helping them understand why that's going to be important for the world that they already live in, but for the world that's moving towards them faster than the speed of change, because the job that they're gonna have likely doesn't exist, and more importantly, it's likely the kind of job they can't wait for. It's probably the kind of job they're going to have to create because that's how quickly this world is changing. And so can, we you, talk can about, you pause on just the, yeah. like what what are these entrepreneurial thinking skills? You mentioned a couple of them, like innovation yeah. and what, what are those things? Yeah, so um, uh, first one of the things we talked about is the permissionless mindset. Okay. For, for many of us, when we see a problem, we have learned to think about power as something that is fundamentally external. Power is something that exists in titles, in positions, in authority figures. And so when I see a problem that needs to be solved, my job is to go find someone with the title, convince them of my opinion about it being <laughs> a problem. And then if they believe me, all right, we get to have something done about it. And if they don't, I get to be angry and bitter. And most people today, I won't say most, many people today feel very angry at the sheer existence of people who think differently than them 
precisely because we don't know any other way to be powerful other than to get people to think like us. Mm. But I, I like to think about the uh, the moment in the the Matrix uh, sequel where um, the com- commander Locke disagrees with Morpheus and he says, Morpheus, not everybody believes as you believe. And Morpheus says, fortunately, my beliefs don't require them to. That's a different kind of power, right? That's the kind of power that says, I know how to have a constructive influence on the world that doesn't require you to share all of my opinions. That's where the permissionless creativity comes from. And so philosophers try to change the way people see the world. Entrepreneurs try to change the world that people see. Both of them are equally important because if you can change the world that Mm -hmm. people see, you can incentivize them to behave differently even if their ideas haven't changed. And so that's one of the fundamental concepts that I, I teach students. I could go on. But I I'll, love, yeah. and honestly, I would love you to because yeah. that permissionless thing, that cracked open my world. It was like, you don't, you can just put your stuff on YouTube and you can invite people. And instead of the people in your life who want nothing to do with this, yeah. those people who are interested can self opt yeah. in by clicking on your video. And it was yeah. remarkable for me to, it, the, one of the, the way that I put it at the time was, you do not need to convince anyone in particular. But the world has 6 billion or 8 billion people in it. So just put your stuff out there and the people with whom it resonates have the opportunity to find it. Whereas before it was, can I get mom or dad or professor or this or that? And even recently it's, can I get a studio head to like my script? And it's just, I've made some money. I cannot, can I just make this and I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll put it on YouTube and you know I'll do it my own way. And yeah. it's funny, I had to rediscover that permissionless mindset yeah. instead of that reflexive looking to gatekeepers to rubber stamp what you're doing and say, yes, it's good enough. Now here's the money and beyond the money, here's my permission to That's go right. and do this. And one, one of the things that keeps us from seeing that is, <laughs> is entrepreneurial stereotyping. There are certain people who make money that we hold up as an example for society and say, if you wanna be a writer, well, here are some writers that mm-hmm. we all know and we can talk about. If you wanna be an actor, here are some actors that we all know. And so if we wanna talk about actors and writers that we all know, then we have to talk about Morgan Freeman and J.K. Rowling. And so people inherit the idea early on, if I wanna be an actor, or, or if I wanna be a writer, or if I wanna be a producer, or I wanna be a whatever, I have to be like one of the people that are so famous that we all have in common. But there are so many writers who make really good money who don't have any books with a major publishing company. They just write eBooks that are on Amazon. They're not famous. You'll never know who they are. None of your friends will know who they are. There are so many actors that are just doing their thing on YouTube. And no, they didn't get a movie deal because they're doing their thing so well. They're just making six figures, showing up, doing their little skits on YouTube. There are so many ways to make a career being creative, but we have to we have to change who our heroes are. We have to change who the people that we study are. If we limit ourselves to stereotypes, then we'll continue to be victims of a kind of thinking that says, oh, entrepreneurs don't look like me. Like Josh, I saw him do an experiment with our audience once where he, 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 he asked the audience to describe what does a successful person look like? And you'd have different people say different things like, oh, they wear a suit, you know, they got the Rolex, they drive this kind of car. And, 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 and in the same way that we have this successful person looks like this stereotype, we also have that about creative people. Mm. Uh, I find that people often equate creativity with eccentricity. Uh, and so creative means my friend with an eccentric haircut or who's a really good, good dresser or somebody that has a really good sense of humor or someone that's really weird, right? But it's everything other than us. And so an important piece of the puzzle is realizing that there is a market for the taste and the interests that are precisely mine. And one way that you can help people see that is to show them how it's already true at the level of consumption. 
If you ask people, hey, is there any kind of food or music or fashion that you're really into and people in your social network laugh at it when you eat that and when you listen to that, every student has mm -hmm. examples of this. They love to talk about that. Oh yeah, I like this kind of music. And then everybody in the room groans. <laughs> and I say, well, when you want to listen to that music, how do you do it? And they go, uh, I go on Spotify. And I said, you mean you don't have to sit in your room and cry that you don't get to enjoy that music because all your friends hate it? They're like, no, I can listen to it whenever I want. Well, why is that? Because your interests, which are crazy and weird, no one else likes, there's a market for it. And we know this to be true as consumers. We approach the marketplace with such confidence. Mm -hmm. But then as creators, we lose that confidence mm. and we say, oh, the world doesn't need a stupid fiction book like that. Yeah, the world doesn't. That's also true of the stupid fiction books you read and buy right now. Mm -hmm. There's a market for your taste. Yeah, they're, they're non-essential, but tremendously value-adding to yeah. a broad swath. It's a very small minority of the pop. All the best-selling books have only been read by the tiniest <laughs> yeah. fraction of the population. Harry Potter's been read by less than 1% of the world, probably, mm -hmm. but... 1% of the world is a whole lot of book sales, right? Yeah. But it doesn't even have to be that. This permissionless thing, that's how, much like Charlie, when you started, you said, hey, I'm not going to wait for someone else's permission anymore. The gatekeeper is going to tell me yes. When we started The Minimalists, I had an inch-thick stack of rejection letters from agents and publishers who all said no. I had spent all of my 20s being told no, your writing's wow. bad, whatever unbeknownst to me, a lot of it actually was kind of bad, right? <laughs> but the truth is that when we started the blog, it was the first time anyone said yes. I remember the first month, 52 people visited our website in that first month. And that's really unremarkable to most people. But to me, it's like, oh my gosh, 52 people are saying yes to my writing. And pretty soon 52 turns into 500 and then 5,000 and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When we made our first film, it's called Minimalism, a documentary about the important things. We didn't have any money. We didn't have a budget. We didn't have any equipment. We just got our friend Matt Diavella in yeah. our car with uh, me and Ryan and, and Matt in this 2004 Toyota Corolla. We were on a 100-city book tour. Here was our business model. If we sell enough copies of our book tonight, the three of us can split a hotel room. If not, we'll be sleeping in the Toyota Corolla. And that was the entire business model. And we would even tell people that at our tour stops. Like, hey, we just gave an hour-long talk and a reading and answered all your questions. If we sell enough books tonight, we can stay at the Hampton <laughs> Inn. And sometimes people would even let us sleep on their floors or their couches or whatever. But along the way, we started making this documentary. And we went to Netflix and we said, hey, Netflix, they were the only game in town at the time. Like this was 2015 when we finished the film. And we we're like, hey, Netflix, uh, do you want this? And they're like, ah, this really isn't for us. OK, cool. We we've always been doing it ourselves. So we'll figure out a way to put it out on our own. We did a theatrical release, 400 cities, U.S., Canada, Australia. I would never recommend doing that. It's a <laughs> nightmare of, of trying to uh, of logistics. And uh, but anyway, we figured out how to do it. 400 theaters did it on our own. And. It was wildly successful for a documentary in theaters. You realize no one goes to see documentaries in theaters, but for us, like it was the number one doc in theaters of 2016. And so we go back to Netflix. We're like, look, look how awesome this did. Do you guys want it now? We'll make it the streaming home. And they're like, no, we told you it's not really for us. <laughs> okay, cool, no problem. We'll put it out on our own. And so we did. We put it out on Vimeo and iTunes and Google and Amazon, you know, through regular any uh, distribution channel that anyone can do. And it really took off on iTunes, so much so that Netflix came back to us and said, hey, you guys know about that film you were pitching to us? 
can we be the streaming home for that? And we're like, yeah, sure, why not? It's going to cost you, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and by the way, that's the, that's the what we admire versus what we advise. Mm. Hey, if we sell enough books tonight, we get to sleep at the Hampton. Do you advise somebody to do that? Like, is that the advice you can ever give to anyone? Someone comes up to you and is like, hey, um, I, I want to be an author. Uh, what should I do? Hmm. I'm going to tell you what you do. Go all in on this thing. Print your books out. Put yourself in a situation to where you, 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 you perish or you win. Hmm. Put yourself in a situation where if you don't sell enough books, you don't get to sleep that night in a hotel. No one's going to give that advice, not because we don't believe that there are cases where that can ever work, but it's never possible to know if the person you're talking to is the one that's suited to be able to do that. Hmm. Is this the type of person that would actually go do that and they would be Kobe and do it with the Mamba mentality? Or is this the type of person that would go do that and and come back crying like, you ruined my life. I can't (laughs) believe you told me that. No one wants to be responsible for that. You know, it's kind of like Peter Thiel talks about successful people know secrets. And that's one of the secrets that they know. Like there are certain things you're not going to give them up as advice, not because you want to keep it as a secret, but you know that the people that are ready for it, they'll, they'll get it from the inside. Yeah. You told yourself that. Nobody can tell you. You were talking about this, I think it was yesterday, when Kobe was telling people to take off his shoes because they hadn't earned it, right? <laughs> <laughs> and there's something about that where like we were just thrilled to like be able to go to bookstores with a book that we had it was our second book and and this was a decade ago now but like just being able we called ryan's toyota corolla the tour bus and here we are 119 events in 100 cities one city at a time and it's some of the best memories of my life but also it was rather unbearable a lot of the times like Mm -hmm. it just Man, I'm sleeping on a love seat <laughs> that I can't fit into. Ryan's on a hardwood floor. We'll figure it out. But like all of it together was like that it was the recipe. I couldn't, as TK just illuminated, you couldn't possibly prescribe that to mm-hmm. someone. Because then when they fail, it's like, oh, I did everything you did. It's like you trying to teach me how to be Michael Jordan. If Michael Jordan shows me, all right, here's the 12 things I did to become Michael Jordan. Guess what? I still am not even going to come close to being in the NBA, right? Mm. Even though he, I follow the same exact recipe, I don't have that same DNA as Michael Jordan. Mm. You're making me realize that I've done, I've given different advice at times than I followed, and I'll, I'll be conscious of that going forward because it is true that uh, it was burn the boats, it, and and not not in a way yeah. where I was going to die, but in a this is <laughs> I'm going to fall so hard in a way that I would not want someone that I was advising too hard but I was prepared to take the face plant myself because I don't know it was awesome <laughs> it was worth it to to live in that way so one example of this uh, my friend Paige Kennedy who uh, played the character U-Turn on Weeds uh, he's in the Meg too um, <laughs> I just yeah. watched that with my daughter this past week oh you did yes, yeah. <laughs> best movie I've ever seen PK. <laughs> <laughs> oh man shout out to you PK but uh, you know part of his story was when he came to LA to be an actor, he didn't know anybody, he didn't know anything about this business, and one of his buddies had an audition for a pilot. And so his, his buddy invited him to come along just so he can observe. And so as Paige walks in, he sees his buddy you know, um, signing in, and then he's gotta put his name, and he's gotta put his agent name, and so on. And Paige gets the crazy idea, I'm gonna sign in. And he puts his name, and because he doesn't know uh, a good agent to put that would sound like a realistic lie, he just makes something up. 
And his buddy didn't tell him to do that, but his buddy warned him like, dude, they don't play that around here. This is the big city. Like you will get blacklisted if you get caught doing something like mm-hmm. that. That's a major no-no. And Paige is like, I'm just going to take my chances. So he gets called into the audition and he goes in. The producers are looking at his information and they're basically like, really? Do you think we're stupid? And he's nervous and they say, you better be good. You better not waste our time. And he reads and they cast him in the pilot Mm. and they say, you're going to need an agent. And they give him the number of an agent to call and he gets his agent that way. He stars in that pilot. He starts booking commercials, starts booking TV shows. And now he's in a Mac 2 mm-hmm. in a theater near you. But here's the thing. Was he one of the sharks? <laughs> <laughs> here's the thing. Now, imagine you don't know that. Yeah. And imagine some young kid comes up to you, maybe fresh out of college, right? Still young enough to where, you know, mom and dad will yell at you and say, what are you teaching my child, right? If, if he ruins his life with your mm-hmm. advice. And he says, hey, I want to be an actor. What do you think I should do? I don't know what you tell him, but I know what you're not going to tell him. You're not going to be like, well, go out to L.A. and see if you can find a friend who um, maybe can go to an audition. Go in with him and try to lie your way into an audition. It's risky. It's dangerous. People are going to hate you for it. But hey, man, if it works, you are the dude. You are a legend. if you're good, you'll carry. Yeah, Yeah, if you're good, you'll carry. So lie, go in there, get in and do your thing. You can't give that out as advice. It's terrible advice. It's terrible advice. Yeah. Yeah. But that's something that he knew from within. And it maybe it wouldn't have worked. Maybe other people have tried it and it didn't. But like what it takes to live life, it's just, it's just got to come from a place that's deeper than what can be prescribed. And this is why advice doesn't work, by the way. We did a whole podcast episode about this called The Advice Epidemic. Whenever someone calls in to the Minimalist Podcast, hey, can you guys have any advice about this? Mm. My response every time is, well, if you're a longtime listener, you know I don't have any advice for you. I do have some observations. Mm. And my observations are based on my own experience. And I, if I don't have observations, if it's something I don't know about, if someone says, hey, uh, I need some advice about badminton. I don't know anything about badminton. Uh, you're SOL. We're probably not going to feature that one on the podcast, right? But if someone calls in and they want advice about raising kids as a minimalist, I don't have any advice for you. I do have some observations from my own life. And whether or not it's applicable to you, it's like that recipe. Here's my recipe. You can pull out an ingredient or two or maybe use the whole thing. But adjust for taste. Adjust for what works for you. Mm. Yes. I mean, I'm conscious of the time because I know that I've got parking, but I've so appreciated <laughs> chatting with you guys. I do, um, gosh, there's so, many, there's so many things that I'd like to wind up with. Let me see which of these is most interesting. I would love this is my own this is my question here because I've I've really appreciated hearing your it's almost like a philosophy of business and there's some things that I have uh, acted on others that I've intuited and some that I hadn't really thought about so I'm curious if you could just share one or two more things the, the what you said about permissionless is landing with me in a bigger way particularly around this writing thing I also want to hear about your writing stuff <laughs> and maybe I need the course yeah. but I'm curious uh, what what other sorts of things are you teaching people in this entrepreneurial class. Yeah. um, The bad news is that nobody really cares about your service or product or your big idea or your dream in the sense that even though your mom might care or your dad might care or a few immediate members of your family might care, for the most part, the world's going to be all right if your dreams don't come true. And for the most part, the people in your life don't need you to become who you want to be 
in order to like you or love you. Your friends just still need you to be the same old fun person you are when they hang out with you. They don't need you to be a business person, NBA player, whatever Mm -hmm. it is you think you need to be. So people don't really care about that. But what people do care about is the story they're telling themselves. And everybody is telling themselves a story. And when you find people resisting what it is you have to offer them, even if you know what you have to offer is good and impactful, the best way to respond to that is not to be defensive nor to give up, but to use it as an opportunity to learn by by becoming curious about the story they're telling themselves. Because when you become curious about the story that people are telling themselves, you not only get to make friends that way, you not only get to learn an awful lot that way, but you also receive instructions from people in the form of that story that tell you how you can more effectively please them. Mm -hmm. There's an old Zig Ziglar quote that says, the best way to get what you want is to help enough people get what they want. You can't do that unless you're willing to become a student of the people that you want to serve and you're willing to take the time to learn about people. And so one of the things I, I, I tell my students is don't get so caught up on the business plan. Don't get so caught up on the financial documents. Don't get so caught up on the analytical stuff, on what the name of it's going to be. All of that is an easy place to hide. It's an easy way to make yourself feel like you're doing business without doing the real business. And the real business is people, right? It was James Baldwin who says, uh, uh, nothing is more important than a person. Mm. You know, nothing matters more than a person. A person is the most important thing. And it's about engaging people. The way you see it succeed at business is by solving problems for people in the way that they define the problem. Creating value for people in the way that they define value. And how do you know what that is? unless you make yourself a student. So there are a lot of stories that have this theme in common of people having really brilliant ideas. And we all know through history that that idea worked, but the initial reaction of the world was one of fear and doubt and skepticism. And had those entrepreneurs given up, the world would have never received their gift. But what they did was they dared to get on the ground with the people and say, what's up? Mm. Why don't you like the food? Why did you leave? Why did you never come back? Why aren't you using the shopping cart? Talk to me. Hmm. And then they listen. And that's one of your most powerful assets as an entrepreneur. It's not about, I, I would say learning to listen is, is more important than learning to code. Both of those things are really valuable, but you can learn how to code if you know how to listen really well, you know, hmm. but it doesn't necessarily work the other way around. There's a huge thing that I'm circling around here. Um, I'm going to give you my framing of it. You, I, I sense that there's something wrong in the framing of this, mm-hmm. which is if there's a spectrum with art and business on one side, and art is self-expression, uh, who cares what they like, who cares what I want, this is what's coming out of me. And then business is who cares what I want, what kind of food do you like, what kind of show do you like, what do you want to see? And I felt this tension between the two in my own life, which is like, look, here's the video that I want to make. Let me see if I can finesse it into a title that I know will do better for the YouTube algorithm. And I'm curious if you have, I, I, I did hear something in what you said, which is the, for you, it sounds like, and I think for me as well, like the art has to be at the middle of it. Like why, why do a business That's right. That's right. <laughs> if, if you aren't and your heart is not at the center of it. You're just pleasing other people because now you have a $100 million business that doesn't please you. (laughs) Uh, But it sounds like there's this, then on top of that, then you add the curiosity of like, look, I could change the title. I can, you know, this scene can shift. This this thing can change. So I'm curious how you manage what seem like two competing uh, 
ways of being that are both important for commercial success and self-fulfillment at the same time. Yeah, I would say it's analogous to the distinction between dating and marriage. Mm -hmm. You know, if we go on a first date, my disposition towards that must be one of openness and non-attachment. I don't need that first date to be successful. I don't even need to define what success is for that first date. I just need to be open to showing up and seeing what happens. Maybe this is such an amazing time that we decide to have a round two. Maybe this is such a drag that we both say, all right, let's not do this again. But the aim of the first date is to be open and see what comes up for the both of us mm-hmm. and whether or not that's interesting enough to continue exploring. Mm-hmm. Now, marriage is very different than that. Marriage involves all sorts of compromises. It involves the setting of certain boundaries. It involves managing expectations, making plans together. And the sacrifices and level of investment that are involved in a marriage would be totally inappropriate to demand of a first date. And yet, you can't get to that marriage part without that first date part, Mm -hmm. right? And so in a similar way, art is like the first date. It doesn't matter what you're trying to sell if you don't believe in it. Mm -hmm. There's no point in trying to connect what you have to offer to someone else's story if your part of the story is something that you haven't bought into, Mm. right? Uh, Sales is a transference of feeling, and so if you don't feel any conviction about what you're putting out there in the world, then you're just trying to talk someone into giving you money. And so you have to spend time flirting with your dreams, flirting with your ideas, flirting with your creative impulses, long enough to explore things that are rich and meaningful to you. And then when you're ready to share that with the world and you want to get it in an art gallery or Mm -hmm. you want to get it on the shelf, you've got, you've actually have some fire in your belly so that when you talk to people about it, you really mean it when you say, yeah, I want this in your, on your shelf. You Mm -hmm. don't have to lie to them or lie to yourself in order to get them to put money in your pocket. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It, um, and the danger for me is because I can get, have been, you know, in a more mature business, so attuned to the audience. When I start new things, I can inject that energy of, ah, but they're not going to like that too early into the ideation yeah. process. And it's, yeah, this, it, it, there needs to be a cocoon of sorts, which is like, what is this thing going to be? Forget what other people like for long enough. And now it's like, okay, now we're married. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now I can start to uh, receive feedback and make changes and that sort of thing. And, and real quickly, by the way, It's okay to do business as long as you are honest with yourself about the fact that you are doing business and you are at peace with your Mm -hmm. conscience about saying, I'm going to create this thing that doesn't particularly fire me up, but I see it's something that other people Mm -hmm. need and I can make a living doing it. So I'm not inspired to cut grass, but I need a little money. And this guy here is willing to pay me to cut his grass. I will tolerate the experience of mowing his lawn for the sake of getting his money. And so I'm honest with myself about what this is and I'm not pretending that it's something else. And then I can play the game of like making that experience as enjoyable and creative as possible (laughs) for myself. Right. But that's an okay thing to do. But if your goal is to make art that matters to you, Mm. then you don't want to lose yourself by trying to figure out how to sell it too early because then you'll compromise the authenticity and integrity of the work. Beautiful. I think I might frame it just slightly differently to wrap this up. I, I think that the, that dichotomy that you're experiencing, I go back to writing. One of the things that I teach in, to my writing students is marrying communicative writing with expressive writing. But it doesn't have to be writing. It's communication and express, expression. We all know no one takes a calculus textbook to the beach to read. Well, why is that? It's technically... Uh, 
decently written, but it's all communication. It's 100% communicative. There's nothing that is delightful about mm. a calculus textbook, unless you're the rare person who obsesses about that. But for the average person, it feels like dread. If I ask you, here's a calculus textbook, go read this on the beach. Like, oh, why are you going to ruin my beach experience with all of this communication? The other side of that is expression. We've all seen the Toretic person who's yelling at a wall on the street here in front of our studio, right? That's pure expression, does not require an audience at all. There's no element of communication. Journaling is that way when you're writing. You're not communicating to some outside force. You're just writing something down, and that's fine. Grocery list, sort of same thing. But what's happening when you marry communication and you marry expression, all of the best works of art do both. Now, some might be way more expressive and avant-garde and surrealist, and they're on that super expression side. Others are really communicative, but they do so in a way that's expressive enough that is delightful and entertaining. Think about any of the pop philosophers on YouTube. Now, the people that really resonate with you, yes, it makes sense that they're communicating something to you, but they're doing so in a way that delights you. They're expressing it in a way that resonates with you. And if you can find a way to marry the two, that's how business works. My friend Colin Wright, who has written over 30 books, we started a publishing company with him back in 2012 called Asymmetrical Press. And what we did is we had published works from nine different authors, and we helped them fail with us, essentially. We called it the authorpreneur model because... Most people who are just writers, they just want to write. They don't want to worry about the business of things. But we're in a world now where that's still important. You have to, if you want to make any money from your writing, you are in charge. Even if you go the traditional route now, in order to optimize that, you still have to do some things to reach an audience, whether it's a blog or social media. And none of those things are imperative, but they can be helpful. They can amplify what you're doing. There's an entrepreneurship of authorship. And so combining the expression with the communication allows you not to just reach an audience, but delight an audience so they share what you're creating with the people that they think will find value in it. That's the thing about adding value. It's contagious. If I really enjoy something, mm-hmm. in fact, I, I listened to your conversation with um, Dr. Orion Taraban, mm. and uh, we reached out to him after I listened to that. I'm like, oh, I'd love to ha- get him on our podcast because he's talking about some things. He's communicating some things in a way that many people turn me off when they communicate it, but he's doing so in a way that, oh, this resonates with me. And uh, so what did I do? I started sharing that episode that you did with other people, not because you asked me to, mm-hmm. yeah. not because someone said, make sure you click and hit the bell notification or whatever, but because I found value in it. And value forces me to share it with other people with whom I think uh, we have a bond and, and they will get value from it as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious uh, if you experience any of this tension when you're, when you're talking, like as a, as a podcaster, as a mm-hmm. teacher, as a coach, because you have both of those things going on, right? Like you're expressing stuff that you're really fired up about and that you really believe. And at the same time, you're talking to people who could at a number of different levels misunderstand you or just completely miss the point. How do you manage that relationship between making sure you're saying things you actually care about while at the same time saying them in a way that gets the effect you wanna have with your Mm. audience or your guests? You know, it's funny, I I am trying to lean more towards art. So Mm. I, a lot of the podcasts that I've done, 
I was able to map out. I was like, oh, we're going to hit this. We're going to yeah. hit this, 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 this. And this is going to flow into this. And then I memorized it because I would do all my scripts in one take. Yep. And people are like, oh, what if? And it's like, no, this was, this was produced. <laughs> this, this, this conversation happened in my head first. And then I performed it to a large degree. Yeah. And actually today, in part inspired just by the vibe that you guys have, I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm going to come in. There's a couple things I want to talk about, but I'm just going to try to be present. And uh, in doing that, I have, A, enjoyed this conversation more, not for any fault of the people that I'd spoken to, but because of what I brought to it. Yeah. And, you know, it'll be up to the audience to decide what that is. But yeah. I was burning out on the podcast because of the way that I was doing it, which is, mm. you know, who's going to do well? What are the topics that the audience wants to hear? And then I'd be like, who's the guy that I want? And I would swing so far into like, what are the niche inside baseball stuff we're going to talk about? And it would get one one hundredth. So I'm still finding, I still feel that tension, mm. but I know that a healthier place for me is to play a longer term game closer to the art side of things. Because if I go too close to that what's going to work side, I can succeed faster, but I, I burn out quick. And mm. you said some people don't feel like that. Some people can just do businesses and cut grass and that's great. That's, that's just not how I've operated though. Yeah. I, I like how you're in tune with knowing what you want your legacy to be and who you want to connect with and what you're not willing to give up for that. That's, mm. that's admirable. And I, I look forward to seeing how your artistic journey unfolds, man. Thank you guys. Yeah. Thank you both. Well, it's been a pleasure. I would love to keep going. I might thing runs out in four minutes, but <laughs> where can people go to uh, find more of you if they're interested? Oh, it's so simple. Everything, whether it's the podcast, the films, books, etc. theminimalists.com. Beautiful. All right. Thank you guys. TK, Josh, both everyone in the studio. It's been a pleasure. Much love. Thank Much you guys. Love.